Welcome to Hort Culture, where a group of extension professionals and plant people talk about the business, production, and joy of planting seeds and helping them grow. Join us as we explore the culture of horticulture. Hello, everybody. Alexis here with the uh, with the Lost Boys, as I'm now calling them, because <laughs> Brett always wants to be a boy, and I'm just calling them all the Lost Boys. But uh, we hope you enjoyed our episode last week of talking with Maddie from K Card, and you know she talked a lot about how to, you know, how you don't need a business plan. Come to K Card; they can work on that. One of those things that they're going to work on with you is talking about your marketing channels, and so we thought we mm. might talk about them with you here today because we have. One of our expert lost boys, Brett, who is, loves to talk about marketing. The so boy we're excited thing, to be it, talking it, about you, that. It, it's, I mean, it probably sounds that weird coming out of my mouth in the first place, but it really makes it sound weird. <laughs> it's <laughs> more of like an accusation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're being called out, B O I S. So it's sort of like fun and stylish and yeah. modern. It's yeah, not like yeah, a, like. <laughs> Is this like the equivalent <laughs> of saying like somebody's fat but with a pH? Yeah. So it's boys with an uh, with an is. Yeah, fat boys. Yeah. The many uses of the same <laughs> word in different situations. Uh, I feel like that could be a whole topic. Yes. I've, yeah. Maybe we should change the title to Alexis and the Lost Boys. Like I feel oh. like it's like isn't Steve the Lost Miller Boys band like a style? thing that happened in like the eighties or something? Like a <laughs> right. The Lost Boys? Peter Pan? Yeah. I know it's Peter, Peter Pan, Pan, but there's another thing. You're thinking of the vampire version. Yeah, the vampire I don't movie. think that's the right. version maybe we're referencing, or maybe we are. Maybe we, like this show, is eternal. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's I think it was the movie with like Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, the there is a Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, yeah. It may or may not be one of my favorite movies. I'm not going to divulge that on this episode of the podcast. I will not do that. All of our Gen Z's out there are now Googling that movie. Yeah, they're like, what is this movie? (laughs) There's three sequels. None of them are any good. I'll just tell you that now. If you're (laughs) going to watch it, watch the OG original, folks. I will give that plug as we lead ourselves into this week's conversation, which is indeed marketing. And I think it's a great conversation to have, as we've mentioned on other podcasts, is that in horticulture, as any endeavor in agriculture or horticulture, marketing and production is very important. But particularly in horticulture, we're oftentimes producing a product, but then we're tasked with also marketing it, especially here in Kentucky with the way our marketing channels are set up uh, and the way that our infrastructure plays out here in Kentucky. Direct marketing is a thing here, and it's oftentimes the case with a lot of the producers that I work with and probably some of you guys on the podcast today work with. So marketing, it's going to be a great discussion because it touches a lot of us in horticulture. Is that a fair thing to say, you guys? If you're going to grow it, you got to sell it somehow, right? I know it's not going to sell itself. It's in most cases. It's I would not say I would say itself. selection and and identification with a particular market channel or channels is one of the most important but poorly understood decisions and considerations that people have to make uh, early on when they're when they're figuring out what they want to do. So yeah, I. I certainly think it's important. It seems like when you lead into this thing, it's, I mean, there's any number of ways we can lead into this conversation. And when someone approaches me, like let's talk about on a county office level, when someone approaches me, uh, usually I start asking questions of the scale of production, you know, and how long they've been producing, what are they producing, what are they specifically asking about, but also the scale that they're interested in 
and just personally what they're interested in. Uh, you know, a lot of times people talk a lot about production very passionately and they have lots of questions on production. But sometimes when I ask, start asking questions about marketing, they may or may not have thought as much about that. But then I kind of back up with them and say, well, listen, depending on what you're wanting to produce, how much you're wanting to produce, when that product's going to come off, all of that, doesn't that impact marketing and their marketing efforts, you guys? Yes. <laughs> In summary. And yeah. the yes. podcast. Well, <laughs> and, and we're done. I think one of the one of the misconceptions or, or one of the uh, faulty ways of thinking that sometimes is attractive to people is that if a market channel is easy to get into, they think that it's easy to do well or be successful in. And so, like, for instance, signing up for your local farmer's market, they may be actually clamoring to have more vendors. And so you, you're in, you know, you pay your whatever the fee is, you show up and you're in. But to be successful at direct marketing requires a whole suite of skills and practices to establish your customers, retain your customers, engage them. We, people think about social media, but it's a whole lot of other moving parts to that. And in some ways, at that scale, the market channel management itself is kind of more complex than it is to sell pallets worth of tomatoes to a wholesaler. The difference being, of course, the price premium and stuff like that. But I do think, yeah, the, we think about the, the scale and the volume that people want to produce. Think about the price they want to sell it for. But also, I think uh, it can be deceptive that the, the quote unquote easier to get into markets, the farmers markets, the roadside stands, etc. They actually they frequently have the highest level of complexity of the marketing portion of the operation. You're almost doing more marketing than you are production. Mm. If you and can I ask the kind of dumb guy, dumb guy question here is, is when you say, when you talk about a marketing channel, is it essentially just where am I selling my stuff? Is that how you describe it? Yeah, and it's maybe any, any, the, the, the path through which you're moving products from your farm out into the world, whether that be, so examples of market channels would be things like a roadside stand, farmer's market, CSA, Things in the additional, like you could do an on-farm retail and or you pick operation. You could do something mm -hmm. like a produce auction. You could do something like local or larger wholesale distribution. These are all individual examples of retail. I mean, sorry, of market channels. You could do gro groceries, again, small or large restaurants, direct to restaurant or through a distributor, selling to processors. These are all these different ways that you can get your product off your farm. It's a great, great clarification, Josh. And usually when someone approaches me, I, I kind of want to know in this case, even before I ask them, you know, about like what marketing channels they're interested in, you know, I want to know kind of how much space they have because, you, you know, we all know in horticulture, it's a, generally the intensity is greater the intensity of production is greater, but so is the production on any given area of land. And even though you may produce very intensively on a quarter of an acre, you may never be big enough to hit certain markets, such as wholesale markets that, and, and I've worked with producers and they've, they've had an acre of tomatoes, uh, you know, and that, that's a, that's really a huge quantity of tomatoes. It truly is. But then mm -hmm. when they approach like, you know, a distribution center. They approached specific at the time. It was years ago. Grocery store chains. 
they said, well, that sounds awesome. You know, your production window is going to match with what we need. When you, can you deliver the first 5,000 boxes, 20 pound boxes of tomatoes? And it really hit that producer that, oh, I'm not producing maybe enough in this case for that particular wholesale market. And they had no plans. They were landlocked. They had no more land. They were producing a lot of tomatoes, but they quickly realized that benched mark them where they were at in the production scheme, because that wholesale buyer for a grocery chain wanted thousands of boxes. And instead that producer was producing dozens and hundreds of boxes, not thousands of boxes. So sometimes just the setup of your operation will help you narrow down things. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it will. It depends on your notion of growth and risk and the potential of each kind of. So some of these things, you know, decisions will kind of be made for you as far as guiding you to specific markets, maybe. And uh, Brett, isn't it true that as you go up in volume, sometimes you go down in price as far as per unit of any given thing? In general, yes, I think there is a push and pull with volume and price. And so I, I think it there is more to that. And part of what you have to consider again, is your, your time and involvement in the process. Because so it may be that you say, okay, I'm going to sell 100 pounds of tomatoes at the farmer's market this weekend, or let's say 500 pounds of, of tomatoes at the market this weekend for $3 a pound. And then I, but I, and then I consider expanding and I go and talk to a distributor and they say they'll give me 20 cents a pound. And I look at that and I think, how on earth does that make any sense at all? And it may not make sense. Ultimately, you may put pencil to paper and it may not. But part of the consideration is that if you're selling 500 pounds at the at farmer's market, if you're able to produce it, you could be selling 15,000 pounds or more at that 20 cents per pound. And most critically, I think, in the case of the farmer's market, you are doing, if you're doing a good job again, you're doing social media ahead of time, you're cultivating an email list, you're taking pictures, you're thinking about communication, you're going, you're, you're harvesting, you're pulling everything together, you're putting it in the fridge or your, your holding facility, whatever, you're putting it and loading it in the truck at chaotic, you know, the on a chaotic Sunday, Saturday morning and uh, one of your kids is sick, so you got to figure out childcare. And so then you're driving the truck in, you're sitting at the booth or paying someone to sit at the booth for eight hours. Then you didn't sell everything. So you're going to have to load that back into the truck and you're going to drive that back to the farm and you're going to have to unload it or figure out a place to do, to deal with it or compost it or whatever. And then you've already got to be thinking about next week's harvest, next week's promotion, next week's social media. You got to make everything look glamorous. You got to do all of that. Okay. So you're doing that to sell 500 pounds of tomatoes at $3 a pound. Or you call up your distributor. You say, okay, we're ready for that. However many pallets of 20 pound boxes. And yeah, you're getting 20 cents. They come or you take it to them. You drop it off. You go back to your farm and you're farming again. So the amount of time that you have spent in the marketing and delivery in those direct market channels is something that people sometimes lose track of. They lose track of the value and the expense of that. And they certainly don't account for that often in their cost accounting. So yeah, yes, that volume and price component does, there is a trade-off there. And in, again, in some cases, many cases, if you don't have a bunch of people working for you, you don't have an established system, efficiencies, et cetera, 
it may not make sense to sell prices to sell products to those wholesale channels at those lower prices. However, don't forget to account for the costs associated with direct marketing that can, they can be considerable. I'll ask you this, Brett, I know you've done so much work in this area. From your experience, does the producer, the one that's growing it or the group of producers that are growing it, are they always the right people to do the marketing? I mean, how does that work? Yeah. So I have a, I was just out in, in at a county office given to talk about personal selling skills. And one of the things that I talk about on the, is, is to know thyself and to, if you hate interacting with people, you are probably not going to get good at interacting with people because you hate it so much. Whereas if you're not particularly good at it, but you don't hate it, then you can get better. You can learn. There's ways to learn how to be better at selling, how to be better at interacting with people, how to be better at public speaking. But yes, I think a personality assessment, we covered it in the, the Primer episode a little bit with those angles on enthusiasm and interest and all that kind of fun stuff. That not everyone, you, people think, oh, it's easy to get into the farmer's market and I can, I don't have, there's no pressure for me to show up with a certain amount of products or a certain amount of whatever. Okay, that's the right market channel for me. And then they forget the fact that they're a misanthrope who can't stand when people ask silly what they think are silly questions or they, you know, can't stand it because the customer thinks they know more than me and they don't know more than me. And it's like, that's kind of part of the part of the process is being able to talk to people, engage with them and do that. And, and they, they wonder why they're miserable or not, not overly successful. And don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way dogging on farmers markets and direct markets. That's the majority of the people we work with work in those, in those Mm -hmm. channels. Um, It's just sometimes I, I, I wish people understood how much it's costing them to do that kind of stuff. Alexis, you, you uh, do a mix of marketing channels with your cut flower stuff some of it you're you're using for direct some of you're doing it for events or selling it you know second you have any comments on the the variability and how much time and energy and everything else you're you're having to spend in those channels and how that has value or doesn't yeah so uh we did farmers market for like a, a year and a day type of thing like a season and a day uh, ultimately, it didn't work for us because we also did events. Uh, and so events happen on Saturdays. And the key with farmer's market, I think, well, there's there's a essential, several essential things, but one is that you have to be there every week. Uh, so if you are the type of person who, you know, maybe has a, you know, child's ball game and you're not yet at the point where you can pay somebody to go to the stall and that happens fairly regularly, you know, more than once a month type thing. Of course, everybody has a vacation or something like that. Like that's a little bit different, but you know, with us, it was, we'd be lucky if we were there twice a month and it wasn't, it wasn't predictable, right? Because we had events. So that's it's not exhausting. predictable and for the customer is what you're saying. The yeah, customer exactly. Who wants so to show the customer, right. The customer wants to see you there. And a lot of the time, you know, they're coming for you, uh, and, you know, maybe grabbing a couple extra things from somebody else, but they're mostly coming for, you know, your product. So if you're not there, there's no need for them to come. They get out of the habit so they don't get there. So farmers and farmers markets are exhausting and you're smiling 24, like the whole time you have to smile, you have to see you're standing, you're being approachable. You want your booth, you're answering questions, you're on, as I like to say, the entire time. And so they are exhausting. So we switched to 
doing roadside stands. Uh, actually, I'm really excited because my stand should be done next week. Uh, my new official professional looking one. Uh, but we switched to that. And that was something that, um, you know, and we're not necessarily close to a main road, but people people do come. And it was at a I could I can put that out on a day when my product needs to be moved and I don't have to necessarily save it till Saturday. So that's another thing. We delve in perishable items. You know, they've got to be moved quickly. Uh, If you're dealing with cut flowers, it's even faster than those tomatoes are happening. So we've got to get things going and you're picking several times a week. So moving to a roadside stand where you don't, it's just kind of a, an honor system and, you know, maybe we don't do quite as much business as the farmer's market, but I also can be weeding in the field at the same time people are paying me for a product. And so when you look at the how much I'm paying, right, I'm getting a lot more stuff done and I'm make, probably making more per hour, even though I'm making less overall. So that's one thing to think of. And then there's, you know, CSAs and CSAs are always – They're easy once you get started, but the process of teaching people when to pick up, reminding them to pick up, a weekly email about pickup. And if you're doing veggies, you might be sending them a recipe. Here's what's going to be in your box so that they can prepare what they're going to buy at the grocery store. You know, what do they need to supplement with? It's an education. A lot of CSAs are education-based you know, and then we haven't mentioned yet, but there's you pick or options as well. So people do that for cut flowers a lot, but also vegetables. And so then there's you opening up your home. If you're farming at your home and then people will want to come knock on your door at any point in time, <laughs> they're like, oh, are there, there's a sign that says that you're not open today, but can I come anyways? And you're like, <laughs> but I no, am hungry. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot to direct marketing. Like you said, the social media aspect, but a lot of people are great at it. Uh, they, they like to smile. They like to get to know their customer. They want their customer to know them, uh, which is which is great, but it's it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, the thing that you're speaking to too is the, like, so what's the reason that people get into these direct markets in the first place? It's because you get a premium on the individual mm-hmm. per unit product. But as you're pointing out, you have to do a lot of customer maintenance, you? a lot of mm-hmm. marketing maintenance, business maintenance in order to earn that. And mm-hmm. it can work great, but it, it is something that's sometimes overlooked, I think. You are consistently working for the customer and not just in the way of you're working to bring them a great product, but you are working to keep them engaged. Uh, and that is a lot of work. Um, to, to keep them engaged and seeing you popping up on their social media or seeing you at the booth and, you know, wanting them to feel connected to you and your product uh, because they're buying your product from you because of you, um, not just because you have a great tomato because there's probably lots of people who have great tomatoes or great cucumbers, but they're buying it because they like you um, versus yeah. a wholesale market is – what do you want? Here, I got it. I drop it off and I leave. And that's great. The other upside of the roadside thing is you can be weeding, but you can also be hanging out with adorable corgis. Yes. While people are paying you. Shout out, <laughs> shout out Remy. And who's the new the new buddy? Finn. Remy and Finn, oh, my Remy farm Finn. my farm manager and assistant farm manager. Uh yes. Assistant to the farm. Maybe manager. we need a photo to pick of them on the uh, on the Instagram. Follow yeah. at Hort Culture Podcast. Oh my gosh. They are so so I I know I knew Remy back from the OG days when he was just a young just a young lad out at the a UK small South loaf farm. of bread with the oh, <laughs> just a <laughs> loaf of bread. Yeah, <laughs> seed, just he was just a seed potato in those days. <laughs> 
and just a baby spud. Oh man, it's so awesome to see them. <laughs> but it's part. It, and like, honestly, it is part of your social media charm in that case, and it's part of you have to be thinking about that, and you make it look very glamorous and very cool. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, pu- puppies and flowers. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the vibe that I'm going for. Let me give you my money to buy a little piece of that mm-hmm. heaven that you're showing me. And then I'll take it home with me and leave you with all the weeding and all of the expenses and all of all the dirty. Else. And yeah. that's the reality of, of a lot of a lot of direct marketing is is about selling an idea, selling a concept, conveying something that people are looking for and I think looking for in their lives. That and it takes a lot of work and a lot of skill to make it look as easy as people like you uh, oh, do. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Josh. Well, was, uh, what kind of, what kind of market channels have you sold into, Josh? In your, in your career as a producer and uh, otherwise a, a rambling, um, rambling Farm man boy? of agricultural a man products, about the farms. <laughs> yeah, a man, a man without a country. Um, a couple of different ones. I mean, I would usually they were diversified, and then actually, I mean, it's interesting. It sort of segues into a question I had, but my experience has been in CSA, a lot of direct market. I would say mostly direct market. Uh, but CSA, uh, restaurant sales, a um, couple of places I worked, well, at least one place, uh, the farm was actually a part of a residential development community. And so the produce actually kind of belonged to the people who paid dues there. So, but all all tending to be kind of direct market. And I did have a question. I mean, you know, you and I both work for the Center for Crop Diversification and similar to diversifying production systems, is there a benefit or a logic to kind of managing risk by diversifying market channels in a single operation? I mean, I, I think yes, but I'm not the uh, guy. Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I mean, you all have, I, I, I could talk and talk on and on and on about this, but I like to hear well, your all's perspectives. What do you all I, think? One of my examples, I mean, a place that I worked out, it was early on, so I didn't have the kind of experience to analyze what was happening. But, you know, we we harvested for a 45 share CSA, but anytime certain crops came in, you know, like we would just one year, I remember we had tons of eggplant, so much eggplant that none of the CSA members are going to want that much eggplant hitting their box every week. And so that's when things would sort of spill over into the restaurant sales channel. And, you know, sometimes we would just have a ton of something and that's when you, or, or the, the farmer grower would contact either the restaurants or he would contact another grower and do like kind of a, a crop exchange to be able to access and essentially unload some of those products that maybe your CSA members weren't interested in. A lot of our local growers, that's what they do, Josh. They, um, you know, maybe produce more than they can, that they absolutely know that they could sell at the the local medium volume farmer's market. So they have developed channels for the crops that they have in larger volumes. And it's usually those middle markets. You mentioned like restaurants. I consider that almost like middle ground. Mm. And the price kind of some falls somewhere is roughly between wholesale and retail. It's a, it's a middle ground market. So we, we have a lot of growers that use those middle ground markets that I still consider direct to consumer almost type markets. And it's a, it's a medium level of production that they can move at one time. It's higher than, you know, straight retail at a farmer's market, but it's a lower requirement to get into that 
than wholesale. And I love those middle level markets. I really mm-hmm. like those. And it seems like the price points vary a little bit on those. But if you can work out something you can work with, it's uh, it's great for those producers that produce beyond the volume, it seems like, of a, like yeah. a local farmer's yeah. market. You can quickly overwhelm a local farmer's market. Right. But it seems like, a re- I mean, like even there was one place where we were dedicated and just sold to one restaurant. And I would not describe it as a large restaurant, mm-hmm. but the way we felt about it or it was articulated was the restaurant was just a monster that would eat everything we threw at it. Mm-hmm. And we could never like overwhelm it with anything. You know, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, uh, when I first came to the central part of the state, I learned some things that I'm sure maybe some of you guys already knew, but it was a learning curve for me in that I came to appreciate restaurant managers and how many hats they wear. Mm. And uh, when they need product, they need product. And that was a tough thing for local farmers is that, you know, they don't want to buy both, in some cases, a, a manager of a restaurant or restaurants. When they buy, they want a one source purchase option to simplify their lives. Uh, and that's something that, you know, is a tough nut to crack sometimes because they may say, well, we really would love to buy locally because we we believe in that, but we really need a hundred boxes of tomatoes every three days or whatever, some right. volume. And so uh, a lot of work goes into, you know, working with restaurant managers and trying to simplify their lives and remove as much friction from that process as possible. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. I've seen both scenarios. Mm. Alexis, do you have like a hierarchy of market channels that get served first versus others. You mentioned the roadside stand maybe as like a a catch or an alternate output for other. Do you think of it that way? Is that like, so for instance, if, you know, uh, God forbid something happened and and you only could service one or two of the markets or market channels Mm -hmm. that you can, you only have enough service. Those do the, are there certain ones that get, get fed first, so to speak? Mm -hmm. So I would say my CSA comes first because those people paid me a while ago. So they're, they're first and I plant kind of based on them. Then wholesale, I can offer them week to week what I have available. As far as event design, I mean, they're of course a priority, but when it comes down to it, I can get flowers from someone else for that if I needed to fill an order for them. Um, so of course, the more of my own blooms I use, the uh, more money I make. So, but that's something that is, is pretty standard that, you know, it's okay to buy others, but the CSA people invest in my farm and my blooms. Uh, and then I'm only going to sell wholesale what I've grown because I'll, then I can't make, I can't make them any money if I'm selling somebody else's product wholesale. And then last would be, yeah, that roadside stand kind of gets the ends of it. And usually, you know, I'm at the point now and you get to a point where you know how many markets that you can um, supply. And so, you know, I know that if I'm growing this amount of space, uh, this amount of plants, whatever, I should have extra. And so that's why the roadside stand is there because I will have extra because, you know, just in case something else fails, uh, and that, that becomes a pretty set, like I know I'm going to have it, but, Mm -hmm. but yeah, your hierarchy, I would say would be who you're contracted to first and how, you know, can you still make money if you're getting it from someone else? Uh, you know, but it's it is nice to have another option with you know a restaurant or something where uh, they might be something you could unload or like the co-op. I know 
there's a co-op in Lexington, a food, like a grocery store type co-op. And they used to, I'm, I, I don't know if they still do, but y- you could contact them if you had a bunch of eggplant or something. And you're not necessarily wanting to go to farmer's market or you just know you can't unload that at farmer's market, but you have a few bushels of beans or eggplant or something. There are places like that that will take those off your hands, you know, for a for the right price, of course. Yeah, I think I think one of the things I you know I would want to emphasize, and we've kind of touched on it, but is when we are, we're talking about uh, you know secondary and tertiary market channels, we're not talking about secondary and tertiary quality. We're just talking about you want to provide a high quality product to any market channel that you're providing it to, because otherwise you won't be providing it to that market channel for very long after that. So this is not a case of well, we took a bunch of zucchini to the farmer's market and didn't sell half of it. And now it's been sitting out in the sun and it's limp and, uh, yeah, yeah, let's take that and see if let's drive around to restaurants and see if they'll buy it out of the back of the truck kind of thing. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about more is like either unpredictable, unpredictability in terms of yields one way or the other that like you have too little or you have too much that you, and I, I think that that, outlook or that mentality of, okay, in a, a, the CSA or the people who have committed to me get serviced first. And then the other, the other prioritization can be based on a variety of different factors. It may be that the unit price is the thing that determines, you know, I know that right. I'm going to, I am going to make the most money off of a small amount delivered to this place rather than this other place. Right. It could be that the long-term relationship management is worth it to like, for instance, let's say you've worked for two years to get into a local restaurant and things are going to be a little thin this harvest. Well, it could be that that's not the most profitable thing for you right now, but having that relationship long-term is more valuable than showing up to the farmer's market this week. Um, right. Sorry, yeah. I, I hate to day. do this, but that's not my primary market channel you have long-term. You take care of people. Yeah. You have to take care of people. And I, I think that brings up just another point that I would say that in general, almost all of the marketing that we, the people in Kentucky engage in is based on relationships. And I think that the relationships in a, a lot of direct marketing, they're, they're kind of, they're, diffuse and there's a whole lot of different relationships that are being maintained all at once and by showing up every week like alexis said at a farmer's market you may be maintaining 500 individual relationships at that point whereas if you burn a chef who's expecting you to show up with product that they need for their menu for that night by not showing up that's one relationship that you have probably just killed sale like a ton of sales just through that interaction and so the relationship management piece and understanding and communicating clearly is a, is a whole whole chapter of this book about understanding market channels and how important it is that that you you show up when you say you will and all that all that kind of fun stuff. But pr- the prioritization and diversification of market channels is a little bit of a self uh, a self actualization or self reflection journey on like what is my business model. What am I trying to do here? Who am I trying to sell to? Who am I prioritizing? And how how does that factor in everywhere else? And if you aren't clear on that, then when things do get tricky or you have an extra amount, it can be un, like kind of hard to know where that stuff where that stuff is supposed to go. Yeah, there's and there's no shame. Like we say it every episode, I think is 
your business changes, right? So you might start out just doing farm stand, um, roadside stand, farmers, one thing, wholesale even. And then as you grow, as you're more comfortable growing, as you know who's around you that can support you should you have a crop loss or something along those lines, you can build those and add on one thing. Like last year, roadside stand for us, we would only do for special occasions. So Easter, Mother's Day, maybe once a month when I had excess. But what I saw and what I kept record of was how much I was throwing away, right? My um, composting, whatever, how much was going bad in the cooler. And I said, okay, well, I need another outlet for that. And that's pretty consistent. I saw consistently I had extra that I could move, but I wanted a low pressure way to move it. And so you'll see that. And it's okay to have years where, you know, you have um, too much and maybe it goes to waste or maybe you donate it to the food bank or, you know, we just started donating flowers to uh, Meals on Wheels when we had extra stuff, you know, and, and they would take it with the, with the, with the food and everybody got a little like posies type thing, but you know, building relationships that way is also good. And a lot of times those uh, places that you donate to will um, get your name out there. And so that's also good, but adapt, you know, it's okay from year to year to increase or decrease what you're doing or decide that something's just no longer working for you or suiting you or your life has changed. People are so scared to, take a step back, I think sometimes. Um, there's this, I have to grow, I have to grow. And one thing that, you know, you need to remember is how are you f- like dealing with that? Are you burning the candle at both ends or are you doing this in a sustainable manner? And sometimes that means taking a step back uh, and you may be able to deliver a better product or even charge more for that product by doing less. Mm-hmm. Personal, personal, you know, mm-hmm. don't kill yourself. I'm saying this mostly to me because I'm exhausted <laughs> yeah, right I was now. Say, was like everyone's looking at Everybody on the podcast is staring at me like, Alexis, uh, are you preaching yeah. to yourself? Yes. The answer is yes. You're trying to, you're, you're thinking your way through your own scenario. But right? yeah, and I have done yeah. that for myself taking on less events this year. But the ma- the cha- thing that we have in a challenge in horticulture is the, for, unless you're doing, you know, sweet potatoes or, you know, winter squash is that you have a highly perishable crop. And so when mm-hmm. it needs to go and when it's ready, it needs to go. And it doesn't matter if you're tired sometimes <laughs> as I am at the moment. Oh, so, yeah. Alexis, would you say in your experience or how you organize your production, would you say your production is kind of informed by what your, what your plans are for your market channels? Like where, or put another way, do you kind of, plan out your season knowing where the crops are going to go before you get started? So I think for flowers, yes, event design, that's something typically Mm -hmm. I can say, I know I need certain colors or if I book how far enough ahead, I like to grow things for those people. And Mm -hmm. the equivalent of this in the vegetable world would be, I would think restaurants. If you build a relationship with a restaurant and they say, I really want Cherokee purple tomatoes or some really weird you know, Asian yeah, whatever. vegetable, yeah. then they are telling you, I will buy what you produce. And so, yeah. yes, there is that manner. And then again, the CSA will dictate what I grow. I know I need to fill 20 shares, 30 shares, whatever. I have to have that available. Uh, and then anything excess is where that roadside stand or that farmer's market or something like that could come in. 
But, you know, I ideally, and you're not, you don't necessarily have that the first couple of years because you're still yeah. figuring out what those things mm. need. And, um, you know, great things about Center for Crop Diversification is they can kind of tell you, you should be able to harvest this many pounds of blackberries in year three off of an acre or whatever that is. So they kind of can give you, you know, low average high realm there, uh, which can be really helpful when planning. But you always you don't know and you're not expected to know the first couple of years unless you've worked on a farm. Yeah, a little a little nuance that you pointed out there that I think is important to keep in mind is that different market channels have different uh, they value different value propositions differently. So a small restaurant that is known for some sort of farm to table dynamic or a dynamic changing rotational menu, or they like to do things a little bit differently or more experimentally or whatever they have. There's a value proposition in them being able to have you grow particular odd heirloom, flavorful, high quality, really beautiful presentation varieties of a thing. Whereas your local Bob Evans their whole brand is consistency of product across all of their restaurants nationwide. And so they don't need anything special from you necessarily. And they're going to, you know, you're going to be selling into a, a distributor, larger distribution distribution chain. And I think that's another thing is that asking to what extent does the market channel care that the product is local? To what extent does the market channel care that the product is special as a special variety or has some other component associated with it. And that's in, in, the, in some cases you, you can offer a value proposition of that small scale interaction. And re, you can't, you can't call uh, a, a small restaurant, can't call up Cisco and say, Hey, can you encourage the people that you buy your tomatoes from to grow me some Cherokee purples and some sure. I had a, other I specialty? I had a really interesting conversation, Brad. It just uh, kind of fits in very well with what you're saying. With a, ma- a current master gardener that I have, just, you know, conversation one day led to the fact that, you know, he loved growing mushrooms. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. He was growing some, I think, some blue oysters. Well, come to find out, uh, he was growing all of these mushrooms in environmentally cr- controlled conditions. I'm like, well, either this person really loves to eat huge quantities of mushrooms or <laughs> something's going on here. So he's a fun guy either way. Yeah. He's a fun guy either <laughs> way, but that is so Thank that you, Ray. showed up. Thank not you, only Kurt. did he wasn't bunting that one, he was going for the fence. <laughs> right. He knocked it out of I the I appreciate park. the setup. He yeah. knocked that. That's yeah. He's a fun, he is a fun guy yeah. in, in multiple ways, but come to find out he was selling to a high end restaurant in uh, Lexington mm. and he grows many of these really interesting crops just for a restaurant mm. and it's mushrooms and interesting tomatoes. He starts them from like his plants. He starts from seeds and grows specifically for a high end restaurant mm-hmm. that prides themselves on local ingredients. And he has built his whole production operation around that. And he does other things, but that's one of the things that he does. But before we get too far into the discussion, I want to throw a little love at the Island of Misfit Toys here for just a second. (laughs) We're talking about, you know, the area of horticulture that we, you know, typically deal with. And that's products that are very consistent, very uniform, very, you know, grade A quality. How about, Brett, you guys, how about those products that may not be free of blemishes that but still have good like eating quality. I mean, what happens to those uh, misfit toys? I mean, do they just go in the garbage or, I mean, can you guys like speak to that at all as far as the maybe restaurant potential for those or, 
or what happens to those products that are sound, but just not visually perfect? What about those? I would say that the industry standard answer would be that those could potentially, now this is if they have cosmetic blemishes, but are otherwise of a good quality. Sound otherwise, yeah. And th they would go to some sort of a processing component. So that could be okay. your tomatoes are going to process tomatoes and canning and, and uh, ketchup or whatever that your you mentioned okay. the restaurants. There, there are restaurants that might be interested in that type of product, especially if they can get a deal on it. There like has salsa or something yeah, like they're that. They're just trying to make a Which sauce. Which is a processing, I guess. You mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, there has been, over the last decade and a half or two, there has been this interest or this growing, I don't know if the demand is growing, but certainly the interest in it is growing to have like an uglies table at your farmer's market booth or to have that opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, for the, I'm, I'm a crunchy hippie in my spare time for people like me, that is something Mushroom that might farmer. have some value that, that the, the value proposition of reducing some food waste, maybe saving a little bit of money because it's not a perfect quality thing. Can can there, it. there has been a, a, mm -hmm. a, a, a certain segment of people who do that. And then yes, Alexis exactly spot on. We do have people who do that processing thing at their own local level. And I mean, we have entire segments with it. The USDA grading is something probably beyond the scope of this conversation, but we have, there are grades. There's number one, number two, number, et cetera. And uh, our produce auctions, which are a, a hugely important part of our local food distribution and purchasing and selling in Kentucky and across the kind of north northeastern United States down through the Midwest has an entire canning or canner quality category that they sell products for mm -hmm. and they sell for cheaper but they're there to to be available to to people who are not using them for anything where they they have to look perfect. So that's kind of the the uh, stock answer and a little bit of the alternative local market answer to that. And I imagine getting those to those locations where they can be marketed is probably pretty geo specific. The locate it's very location specific, and they may or may not be convenient to an operation. I guess is is that a fair statement? I think so. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that it's a, it can be the whenever you talk about starting to reduce the amount that you're making off because it didn't you didn't spend any less money, any less fertilizer, any less time on growing those ugly tomatoes. And yet you're going to sell them for lower money. Well, that or for a lower price, that means you're going to need to consider whether it's worth a. So, for instance, an example of that would be you got to buy 25 pounds of these if you're going to buy them from me. You know, I'm not going to sell them by the quart like I do at the farmer's market or whatever that may be. Yeah. But if I could, if I could just briefly follow up on something Josh said. About the idea of do you do you plant to your marketing channel uh, expectations I think the ag economist side of things and the people who are into marketing and, and would say, yes, as much as possible, <laughs> you want to have everything that you're putting in the ground sold before it even goes into the ground. And we actually have a publication called What to Think About Before You Plant, uh, available through the Center for Crop Diversification, the, the University of Kentucky. And really, the sneaky thing is, it's not what to, not everything what to think about before you plant. It's consider your marketing and where you're going to sell this stuff before you plant it is really the subtitle or the, the real title of the document. And uh, it summarizes a lot of the differences between market channels in a nice, cohesive way. Maybe something folks want to take a look at. But 
I think in general, you know, Alexis has given real talk, you know, about right about you can't, I mean, yes, I, ideally, yes, I would like for people to pre-purchase every tulip that I sell before I put that bulb in the ground. But the, re- the reality is you're, it's a balancing act. But if you are planting and praying, you know, I'm, uh, I got, I'm going to put out, <laughs> you know, 2000 squash plants and hopefully somebody's going to buy this squash when it comes out. That is maybe a dangerous proposition. A little bit fast and loose. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, you don't have to have it all sold. I will, from the tulip point of view, uh, perfect. It's been a warm year, uh, and most of us have experienced that we had a lot of tulip failure this year. So I didn't have them all sold, which meant I had enough to uh, supply, and then the other ones just didn't do anything. So there was that benefit of. You know, have some of them sold, but definitely overplan for whatever you have sold. <laughs> yes. Tulip gate. Tulip gate. You, you thought you were going to have tulip, but you ended up with one lip. <laughs> Unilip. He's, he's not going away, folks. <laughs> we try not to encourage him, but if we feed him after midnight, he doubles. Yeah. It's an exponential function. Now. <laughs> he doubles. It gets twice as bad the next episode. So whatever you do, don't follow those links Alexis tells you about all the time and encourage Brett Wolf and his <laughs> punny, funny puns. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think in like something that I've, I've seen over and over again, I have seen people who start out or have gone for a long time in the wholesale, large scale distribution side of things. And either because of pricing, because of access to labor, because they get older for whatever reason, they elect to move more in the direction of the direct marketing side Mm. of of the approach. And they see those premiums and they take a lot of their experience from that side of things and they apply it to be able to be uh, successful in, in a number of ways. But they also bring the fact that they're not used to doing as much marketing as is required for direct marketing into that. I've also seen people do the opposite where they start out, they kind of get their on-ramp. The the traditional thing that we think of is people get their on-ramp with the farmer's market or they get their on-ramp with maybe with not, probably not CSA. CSA is a complex way of of doing a roadside stand or something like that. And then they eventually scale up and then they go into the wholesale side of things um, or they diversify and add that to their product mix. And so I've seen, I've seen both of those directions uh, work and, there's also challenges to growth in both of those where, uh, whether that be the scale, adjusting to the scale of those expectations of the larger channels or adjusting to the marketing expectations and, and efforts required of the, the more direct channels. But um, I think the path, the paths can be gone. You can go a lot of different directions with it. But ultimately, there's a, I have a lot of respect for people who are selling products in any market channel because they are hard to, to navigate and, and they take a lot of skill and a lot of time and a lot of energy. Cool. Maybe this is a good spot to kind of summarize things. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, so one of the first things Brett mentioned, which I think it's good to mention now is just because a market channel is easy to get into, they aren't necessarily easy to succeed within. Something to keep in mind, uh, time and cost considerations are different between different mark channel, between different marketing channels, typically more for direct markets. Uh, there is indeed a benefit to diversifying your market channels. And the way that might work is you might have your primary channels might be there for managing relationships or serving loyal customers. Maybe it's driven by a better price. 
whereas secondary channels are kind of to make sure that you're not losing anything to waste, but they're still a quality product. Um, market channels assign value differently. So it could be aesthetics, varieties, volume, sustainability, grading. Anyway, just to keep in mind that they're going to give you value for your sales differently based on what the market is and that your market channel mix or focus can change over the time of your, over the time or as time passes with your operation. And that's what I got out of this. Hit it right on the sweet spot, Josh. That was awesome. Good conversation. It's always applies to horticulture and other areas too. It's a great conversation. Look at us learning about markets and how to make a business plan and all these cool things we're doing these days. Hopefully that's Brett. helpful. <laughs> I'm quietly taking notes the whole time. I'm like, I'm, these guys, they, they know more than they I know. He all. keeps asking me questions and I'm just like, I don't know. Can you just tell me? I don't <laughs> <laughs> Just give me the answer. Can okay? you just tell me answer. if what I'm doing is right? Because I don't really know. Um. <laughs> they know. This, they're, they're humble. You know, one of their, the strengths of the – of these folks is their humility. So they're, it's really shining <laughs> through here. So nobody's, you know, nobody's as humble as them. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they, they say it all the time. Nobody's as humble as I am. It's only how I think of myself. <laughs> it's hard being perfect in every way. <laughs> I do my best though. All right. Well, we are so grateful that you were here with us today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that. If you have any other thoughts for podcasts, please, you're welcome to share them with us. Um, we, you can find us on Instagram, Hort Culture Podcast. Uh, our email is on there as well. So you can find us. Our email is Brett. What is it? I forget. Oh, the the one that you yeah. You what's our on? what's our email address? I should know. I think it's called, it's Hort Culture Podcast at L dot uky dot edu yes and that will come to all of us That's so correct. you know if you have something specific that you want to ask one of the bald boys you can title mm -hmm. dear bald boy dear bald uh, boy and they will they will answer bald boy one it and bald boy two we'll let you all decide who's who <laughs> Uh, but anyways, thank you for joining us today. And as we grow this podcast, we hope you grow with us. Join us next week for some crop rotation. And that's going to be fun. Back to the plant part of it. Uh, thank you all so much and have a great day.